Welcome to the Sliders and Curveballs podcast. My name is Mike, and I'm here with my son, Joseph. Together, we are learning sports one game at a time. Thank you for tuning in. We have a very cool opportunity today. Welcome to the show. Yes, sir. It's rare you meet a person who spent their entire career making a living from one of our favorite sports, basketball. Chris Bernuka has studied the NBA scene for decades. Over 20 years as a freelancer. Worked for the AP, ESPN Sports Ticker, and Sheridan Hoops, in addition to coaching. He loves the game And so do we. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Sliders and Curveballs podcast. We're going to jump right in, and we thank you so much for being with us. In our humble opinion, the top 10 best players of all time and in order are Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Bill Russell, Kareem, Wilt Chamberlain, Kobe Bryant, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Stephen Curry, and Tim Duncan. Are we correct? Who would you replace? And who makes up that next group? Players 11 to 20. Is Shaq in there? Kevin Durant? Nowitzki? Maybe Dwayne Wade? Barkley? What are your thoughts? This is your first slider and curveball. Oh, that's so hard. Uh, I used to, I used to, I, I don't think this is a short conversation. So I'll, I'll try to be as brief as possible. I used to think that there was a magnificent seven, so to speak, that, and those seven were, and this was prior to LeBron entering the league. They, they were, it was Wilt, Kareem, Russell, Bird, Magic, Jordan and Oscar Robertson. And if one of those guys was the guy that you thought was the best player in NBA history, I wasn't going to argue with you. I thought anybody outside of the realm of that seven could not be in the argument for best player ever. Now, over time, things have changed. Initially, In my mind, LeBron has bumped Oscar Robertson out of there. Uh, I also used to believe that Will Chamberlain was the best player in the history of the game. And I no longer believe that. Uh, There's a lot of things that kind of play into that. And I actually saw Wilt play live as a youngster, a little bit younger than your son, Joseph. Uh, But in terms of the order you have there, I think those 10 are correct. I don't know. I, I know for sure I would not have Kobe ahead of Magic and Bird. I know for sure that I would not have him there. Uh, Kobe was not an alpha for a long time, uh, for a significant portion of his career. Uh, and I think all of the other guys in there were alphas for their entire career. You can make an argument that maybe Magic wasn't an alpha when he first came in, but he also won a championship as a rookie jumping center in a finals game. So that kind of answered the question right away. As far as the top two, 
I know that the Jordan stands are out there and he has very, very good arguments. He has very strong arguments. What I will say is this, to not go down that rabbit hole. LeBron is the better player. Jordan had the better career. And that's how I kind of separate them. And I don't, I, I don't think there's any argument to either one of those points. Jordan was 6-0 and in the finals. He probably would have been 8-0 had he not retired. And, and that would have maybe fully clinched it for him. But he did walk away from the game, and then he came back. LeBron, I don't think anyone would argue, is a more complete player than Michael Jordan. LeBron is going to end up as the all-time leading scorer in NBA history. And scoring isn't his best skill. And that's pretty frightening when you think about it. That somebody's going to score 40,000 points, and you don't necessarily, when someone says, what type of player was LeBron? You don't say scorer, like you say about Durant, you know, or Wilt, you know, or Jordan. And so that's where I am at the top of that. I think the 10 players who are in there that you have in there are the 10 in this moment. Now, if you want to get into 11 to 20, I think guys like Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, Moses Malone, Shaquille O'Neal, ultimately Kevin Durant. uh, I think those are some of the guys who comprise that next 10. But I think a lot of this is quibbling. And I think the the deeper that we go into this, uh, the more you will see. And I think as the game's history builds, like right now we're at 75 years, you know, when we look out 25 years from now at 100 years, I think you will see that the vast majority of the guys who are in the top 10, top 20, top 25, top 30, top 50 will be more contemporary players. I think players like, and these were great players for their era, but I do think players like Russell and Pettit and Mikan and some of the players who played in the 50s and into the 60s, I think they're, they are going to be pushed to the wayside or pushed further down the list by more contemporary players. Because I am a firm believer that the players in in this sport and virtually every sport get better with time. I I really don't see much comparison between the players today and the players of 20, 30 years ago. And I'm not talking about looking at like the peak of it because I think Michael Jordan would be a wildly successful player in any era. But I think if you looked at the average player when Michael Jordan was playing and compared that player to the average player now, I think you would see a wide difference between those players. Uh, I think some of this comes, I, I think it's, it's sometimes hard to remove personal preference. I was never really a big Wade guy. There was just something about his game that, that I just was like, it didn't tickle my fancy. And at the same time, I love Dirk. I think Dirk is the greatest European player of all time. And then again, that's, I mean, where does Giannis shake out in all of this? <laughs> you know, like when Giannis is said and done, he might be the greatest European player of all time. But I think those guys are in that 11 to 25 range. I think, I, I mean, I, I, I said Shaq before, but I think Barkley is in there. I think Dirk is in there. I don't know if Wade is in there, but he's not that far below it. You know, Uh and then you, 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 what are your criteria? Uh, you know, you have people like Allen Iverson who won four scoring titles, but only played in one finals. 
Is he in the top 25? Probably not. Probably not. Is he a great player? Absolutely. Pound for pound, he may be the greatest player of all time. The guy was 160 pounds. But, you know, there's other people in that conversation too. Like, where is Carl Malone in that conversation? People say he's, you know, the greatest power forward of all time or the second greatest power forward of all time. Where are guys like Bob Pettit? You know, it's, it's, it's a tough conversation and assigning a permanent number to any of these guys is in, with all due respect, I think is, I mean, it makes for great conversation, but I think it's a fool's errand, quite frankly, because even if you're put, even if you're putting Jordan above LeBron or LeBron above Jordan, how much is the difference really? Would you be unhappy if you picked second in that draft? You know, it's, it, I, I think it's, it's difficult to assign a, a permanent number to people. You know, people have Curry climbing now into the top 10 because he has four championships. Uh, what if Kevin Durant wins two championships right now with the, with the Brooklyn Nets? Is he now ahead of Curry? Like, it's, it's a tough assignment and yes, it's a fun conversation, but I I don't know what the means is to the end, quite frankly. Before Joseph asks his question, I promised you guys a question, okay? And maybe when you guys air this podcast, you can have your listeners kind of consider this and we can give the answer at the end. I love it. All right. Who is the only NBA team never to play on Christmas? Okay, we're going to give that some thought. Six or seven teams just came to mind, but I'm going to keep it in the back of my mind. Will you hold it to the end, Joe? All right. The only NBA team to never play on Christmas. You know, I'm absolutely terrible at trivia, too. So this is this is putting me in a tough spot. You want to take one initial guess, Joe? All right. Joe has an initial guess. And then sure, if not, wait the end. I'm going to guess the magic. Incorrect. All right. Well, let's see. They're never on. All right, Joe, go ahead. You fire off your first question, and we'll ponder that for the end of the show. Everybody likes offense, but who are the top five best NBA defenders? Wow. Wow. That's a really broad question. I mean, immediately, I think you'd have to put Russell in the list, Bill Russell in the list, right? I mean, Bill Russell is primarily considered a a top 10 player simply because of his defense. He was a somewhat, I don't want to say, he was a slightly above average offensive player, but it was his defense that made him so special. Uh, You know, Will Chamberlain might be in there too. I... When I was covering the league, I had the opportunity to talk to people who were no longer in basketball and had played against Will Chamberlain. And both Johnny Red Kerr, who was a longtime player for the Bulls and later became an announcer for the Bulls, and Jerry West told me that Will Chamberlain would have all of the block shots records that people claim to have right now, that he blocked somewhere. Both of them told me that he blocked somewhere between six and eight shots per game. So factoring that in, you you would have to certainly kind of include him in a discussion of the top five. Uh, Gary Payton, if we're looking at guards, Gary Payton was a tremendous defensive player. Uh, Steve Kerr once referred to him as a one-man double team. <laughs> and he, it's, there's such a commitment needed on that end of the floor. And, and I, I personally, I also think that you can't be considered a great defensive player if you're not taking on the toughest assignments at all times. Uh and usually that means that offense doesn't come with your game. 
Like if you look at a player like Marcus Smart right now, who is clearly among the best defensive players in the game today, uh, he's a, a pretty good offensive player, but it's not – no one's asking him to score 25, 20 or 25 points a game. His primary contribution is on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, forwards, there was a there was a guy who played – for the Philadelphia 76ers, started his career in the ABA named Bobby Jones, who was a terrific defensive player. Dennis Rodman was a terrific defensive player. Uh, I mean, you're asking me to encapsulize five players from 75 years. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to do that. But those are the guys who kind of stand out to me. There, there were also guys who were kind of nondescript players who people don't remember. Like there was a guy who played for the Denver Nuggets in the 70s and the 80s named T.R. Dunn, who was a phenomenal defensive player. Ron Artest was a great defensive player. So again, picking a five from the history of the NBA is very difficult, but those are the names that kind of come to me right away. Tim Duncan was a phenomenal defensive player. Uh, so th those are some of the names that come to me right away. We love it. You like those, Joseph? It's, uh, you know, that's why we call ourselves sliders and curveballs. These aren't going to be easy pitches for you to hit here, Chris. So, but that's a really good list. Very good list. If I had a little more time to think about it, I could probably do a deeper dive on it. But I, I appreciate you. I appreciate the the kind of catching me off guard with this. It, it, it's kind of cool to do that. Absolutely. Now, we know you have loads of stories from covering the NBA, and we'd love to hear a few of your favorites. But before we do, how did you get your start in the media, and what was the best part of your job? I can answer the second question first. And I think this is the best part of not just my job, but of any job. Best part of job is when it doesn't work. When you feel like, boy, I would do this for nothing. I would do this as a hobby. And there were many times where writing about basketball felt that way. Uh, it was... Sometimes, like, I was struck by, you know, if you just kind of thought about it, it's like, wow, someone's paying me to do this, you know, to sit in some cases really, really close to the court and cover the most, you know, important games of the NBA season. I mean, that was absolutely, you know, mind-boggling. And, and when I was doing it, when I would go to kind of social functions and people asked what I did for a living. And I told them you could see either physically or mentally, you could see the jaw drop. You, you could see them like, wow, that's what you do. And I was like, yeah, that's what I do. Uh, how did I get into it? Uh, to be perfectly honest with you, when I was picking colleges back in the early eighties, I really wanted to be a recording studio engineer and I applied to the Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And they didn't, I, I was a DJ at the time, and they didn't accept me because I didn't play a musical instrument. But I had always been a good writer in my English classes. All of my English teachers had always told me that I was a good writer. So I kind of shifted away from music and more towards a career of writing. And I was accepted into Boston University as a transfer student. I had done one year of college at a community college in New York City, and then a family situation had me move up to the Boston area. And so I got into their journalism program, which at the time was probably one of the top dozen journalism programs in, in the country. It probably still is. It's now called the College of Communication. And it was very, very different back then. Obviously, there was no internet. Uh, they had, they actually had classes in magazine writing, which is, I don't want to say that's a, a dead industry now, but it's certainly not as 
full of life as it was, you know, 30 or 35 years ago. But I wanted to be in print journalism. And I eventually latched on at, at Associated Press. I actually left school to take the job in the Associated Press Sports Department because I felt like that's what I wanted to do. If I was going to write for a living, I wanted to write something that uh, that made me happy and that I knew I felt I would really enjoy. Uh, I can tell you this. I don't. I don't know if it's still said in the industry, but. Uh, the sports department in virtually all walks of journalism, whether you're working at a wire service or a newspaper or uh, a website or whatever, is often referred to as the toy department. So you could see how the job has the potential to become fun. That's so cool. Now, did you enjoy basketball at a young age like Joseph does? Very much so. Very much so. I grew up in New York City, and in New York City, basketball is the sport. Uh, and you have to remember that when I when I was growing up in New York City, like when I was when I was Joseph's age, Joseph, you said you were ten, correct? Yeah. Yeah. the 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 Knicks were the they were almost a dynasty from 1970 to 1974. They there's 1973, they appeared in the finals three times and, and won twice, you know, and they, you know, New York it was just crazy with the Knicks at that point. My father was a huge Knicks fan and he had suffered through some lean years with the Knicks. Things started to change for them after the Dave DeBusher, Howie Comives trade in the mid to late sixties. And when Holzman became coach, uh, and he was the one who kind of turned me on to basketball. And at the same time that that was going on, uh, I started reading about basketball players and two of the guys who caught my fancy right away were Will Chamberlain and Jerry West. And as I said in an earlier portion of this, the first basketball game I ever went to was game three of the 1972 NBA finals. So I actually saw live, although I don't have a visual memory of it, I actually saw Wilt, Jerry West, Dave DeBusher, and Willis play live. And that was my introduction to live NBA basketball. At the same time that all of this was going on, there was this other league being played called the ABA. And most folks in the NBA looked upon the ABA as like a clown league. You know, it had the red, white, and blue ball. It had a three-point shot. Uh, the players were kind of encouraged to be flamboyant. And it wasn't nearly as straight-laced as the NBA. But what the ABA did have was a fellow named Julius Irving. And back then in New York... You couldn't see any teams play their home games unless you lived in Manhattan and had something called cable television. But you could see their road games, and both the Knicks and the Nets were televised on WOR Channel 9. Their road games were televised. And the first time I ever saw Julius Irving play, he was on the Virginia Squires playing against the Nets. The Nets were playing a road game in Virginia and Julius went for 58 and I immediately fell in love. I couldn't have been more than 10 or 11 years old at the time. The following year, he was traded to the Nets and was now playing in New York. So I got to read about him every day. And <clears throat> there was, this is kind of interesting. I remember this from my early teenage years the older guys in my neighborhood who had kind of grown up with the Knicks felt like Walt Frazier was the best player in the NBA because he was able, he was such a great point guard. He was able to control the tempo. You asked about defense before he was a terrific defensive player and he was just so super cool with the way he dressed and everything like that. All the older guys in my neighborhood liked him. And the younger guys like me 
were kind of telling them, you know, you think Walt Frazier's the best player in the NBA. He's not even the best player in New York. This guy, Julius Irving, is a better player than him. And it was, you know, a fun argument that kind of went back and forth. And they were dismissive of us because we were younger and we hadn't been paying attention to the game as long. But, you know, once, I mean, Julius Irving was the reason for the NBA-ABA merger because the powers that be at the NBA had to acknowledge in the mid-70s look, we have a league here that's struggling financially and we're, we're in a bidding war with this other league over here, the ABA. And we have to admit that the best player in basketball plays in that other league. And while you could argue that at the time, Kareem was obviously in his prime in the mid seventies. I mean, there were anybody who knew about basketball knew how good Julius Irving was And as soon as he came into the NBA, he and several other ABA players kind of proved it. I'll give you a statistic, okay? The NBA merger took place before the 76-77 season, okay? That year's All-Star game had 24 players. Ten of them began their careers in the ABA. So there were obviously some pretty good players over there. And that's what kind of... You know, when Irving came into the league, the Nets had to sell him to the Sixers and because they needed the three million dollar entry fee to get to get into the league. They had to pay territorial rights to the Knicks to get into the league because they were they were hypothetically taking away some of the Knicks fan base and the Knicks need to be needed to be reimbursed for that. And. Julius Irving was then given a five-year, $3 million contract by the Philadelphia 76ers. So people started calling him the $6 million man based on a popular TV show around that time that starred Lee Majors. And he couldn't wear number 32 for Philadelphia because that's what number he wore in Virginia and New York. But because Billy Cunningham had worn that number and it was retired. So he changed his number to six, kind of to mirror the $6 million man. And I've always been more of a player guy than a team guy, but that's where basketball really kind of took off for me. In the early 70s, with the tail end of the the careers of some of these guys, who some of them who began their careers in the 50s, and then like the new guard coming in from the ABA. Another guy I really liked from back then, and I was really happy to see him added to the top 75, was Bob McAdoo, who was an absolutely fantastic scorer. Bob McAdoo in his prime was probably among the top six or seven pure scorers in the history of the game. Well, Joseph, uh, you know, you're you're probably not going to be knowledgeable about this, Chris, because I'm going to guess that you're not an avid video game player. But Joseph, he plays this NBA 2K game. And he knows Dr. J from that game. He's so great in the game that we actually have a rule that you can't play. You can't be Dr. J. That's how good he is in the game. <laughs> wow. And now, now I can tell you a video game story about Dr. J. Okay. You guys are familiar. I is, is NBA 2K made by EA sports? Uh, Joseph's better at probably that question than me. No. Okay, well, there's there's a video company out there called EA Sports. Their commercials used to say EA Sports. It's in the game. Do you know what EA stands for? No. It stands for Electronic Arts. Okay, so way back in the beginning of video games, EA Sports developed... Of a basketball video game called Julius Irving versus Larry Bird one-on-one, okay? And they made a poster to go with the release of the game. And my father was working for a department store chain in the New England area called Leechmere. I don't know how long you guys have lived in Connecticut. They had several stores in, I think they had one store in Connecticut, but they had stores in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Uh, Rhode Island. And 
Larry Bird came into one of the stores to sign posters as a way to kind of, you know, boost sales for the game. And my father brought home the poster signed by Larry Bird. Now, Julius Irving is also on the poster. A couple of years later, when I was in, uh, in my senior year of college, I had a roommate. His name was Guy Zucker. Uh, he was from Israel, and he was covering basketball for Israeli radio while going to Boston University. He ultimately became a player agent, and the big names that he represented, he represents a lot of players in Europe, but the big American, um, NBA player names that he represented were Marcin Gortat. I don't know if you remember him, the guy they called the Polish Hammer. He, he used to be a backup to Dwight Howard in Orlando. Yes. Uh, and a Swedish player named Thabo Cephalosha. And so he represented those two guys. I kind of lost touch with him, but he had an NBA league-wide media pass, and he would go to all the Celtics games. And I gave him the poster to bring to a Celtics Sixers game that I attended as a fan. I was not a member of the media at that point. I was still kind of a college student. And he got Julius Irving's signature on that poster. So now framed in my bedroom is a poster of Larry Bird and Julius Irving, and both of their signatures are on the poster. That's fantastic. And yes, I remember Leachmere. I was probably too busy running around Bradley's at the time. There you but, go. Uh, I do remember it. Joseph, why don't you fire off your second question here? Where, where will LeBron James end his career, and will he be the first dad to ever play with this son? I have, I have, Joseph, that's a, a good question. I, I think the short answer to that question is wherever his son winds up. Uh, and I have learned to never, ever doubt anything that LeBron James says or, or does on the floor. Uh, I understand that he's four and six in finals. I get that. People like to hold that against him. You know, and and I just think, you know, getting to the finals, if you think about all of the players, all of the great, great players, what we were talking about before, guys in the 11 to 25 range, we didn't mention Patrick Ewing, who is a phenomenal basketball player, you know, is truly one of the all-time greats. And he never won a championship and only made it to two finals, one of those he was injured for. Jerry West was one and eight in NBA finals. So I, I think people are too hard on LeBron for that. But from what he's done on the court, where there were times where you just looked and said, how did he carry that team to the finals? I mean, the first time he did it was in 2007 when he was a relative babe in the woods. He couldn't have been more than 22 years old. And then he did it in, again in 2018 with that Cleveland team. And you just looked and, and, and I've just learned not to doubt him, you know, when and, and some of the off court stuff he's done as well, you know, about this kind of media empire he's built, the school that he's built in Akron, you know, and I've learned not to doubt him. So if he says he's going to play alongside his son, then he's going to play alongside his son. And the year that Bronny is eligible for the draft, boy, is that going to be an interesting draft. <laughs> I agree. Now, speaking of King James, how many more rings do you think he could get? And would you share your story of speaking with him while you were covering his career and you were in the press rooms? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think there has to be dramatic changes uh, in in what roster changes in Los Angeles, if he's going to even contend for another ring, like I I took a look at their roster today because I, I I wanted to be kind of prepared for this, Mike. You know, and like, all right, they have LeBron James, they have Anthony Davis. That's a great one-two punch. Like, what's behind that? Like, I don't see anything else 
there. I know Russell Westbrook is still considered a good player. He's a bad fit for that. And they're actively trying to trade him. So who, I mean, are people really convinced that Kent Bazemore, Juan Toscano Anderson, Wayne Ellington, Kendrick Nunn, Austin Reeves, are, are, are people really convinced that those are the guys that can comprise a championship team? I mean, those are, that's not enough depth to contend in the West or in the NBA. And, and I think he's just going to be spinning his wheels here unless the Lakers do something dramatic, like figure out a way to pry Kyrie Irving away from Brooklyn. Uh, to, to answer the second part of your question, the, the best interaction I ever had with him, first of all, like, I, in the 2007 finals, I was astounded that before the games, he was talking to the media. Like, you don't know how many players in that era, used, you know, and specifically stars, just used to tell the media, I don't talk before games. And that was it. Like, like you couldn't go to the media relations director and say, hey, I'd really like to talk to this guy. They would just repeat what he just said to you. They would say, he doesn't talk before games. And that was that, okay? But the NBA Finals, it's a little bit different. When I was covering the league, they had a separate room that could seat about 100 reporters and for a half hour media session, they would bring in the coach and two players and the rest of the players would during the same half hour would be available out on the court. Uh, some would have podiums. Some would just be sitting on the bench depending on kind of their importance to the team. So LeBron, of course, for all of the finals games gets brought into this room. So, NBA Finals that year against the Spurs start on a Thursday. And, and the Spurs, who have all of this Finals experience, just do a number on the Cavs. They really kind of shut down LeBron, and he's really kind of like a one-man team. The next best player on his team is Larry Hughes, and he's got plantar fasciitis. He can't even run, okay? And so they were two days off until the next game. The next game was Sunday. And that Sunday was also the series finale of The Sopranos, okay? And LeBron had made, made it known in previous interviews that he kind of liked The Sopranos television show. So the day after the game, Friday, we all wrote the aftermath of what happened in game one and what Cleveland can do to kind of free up LeBron a little bit more and that sort of thing. It was kind of, kind of an X and O day, you know, but the next day you're kind of stuck because now you have this extra day off between games. So you have to come up with some sort of story that kind of titillates your readers and like, Oh, where that, that, that's an offbeat story. So I'm sitting in the media room and I asked him and I can give you some of like the, surrounding stuff that was going on. What they would have was they had these mics with these extended arms that somebody would hold in front of you to ask a question. And the guys who were doing that were on a headset with my friend, Mark Broussard, who still works at the NBA and was kind of mediating things and picking the people to to ask questions. And I was, I was really tight with him. I had known him for a long time. So if I put my hand up, he was going to call on me. So I put my hand up and I started asking LeBron. I said, you know, LeBron tomorrow night at 9 PM, America's going to turn on their television sets. And I said, do you think they're going to be more interested in watching Tony Parker, who was the starting point guard of the Spurs at the time? I said, or Tony Soprano. And while I was asking that question, Broussard told me later that one of the guys who was on the headsets for the NBA said, what kind of question is that? Where is he going with this? And, and Mark just kind of told him, relax. He knows what he's doing. 
just relax. And LeBron just gave this answer, like he just spoke for about four minutes straight, stream of consciousness about the Sopranos. And now like everybody had a story for the day. I mean, I didn't know him well enough to get him on the side and ask him that, which would have been great because then I would have had the story. But it kind of changed the news agenda for the entire day. It's like, here he is in the middle of his first NBA finals, and he's going off on this five-minute tangent about his favorite Sopranos characters and what he thinks is going to happen to Tony and all of that stuff. And like, like the entire room, all of my colleagues, everybody who did the same thing that I did for a living were like really fired up because like they had all come into this day like, oh my God, what am I going to write today? And then bang, there it was, a beautiful story that basically wrote itself. And one of the other things that was kind of playing into this, which was a side part of my story, was that the previous Sunday was the season finale of Desperate Housewives. And of course, the star of Desperate Housewives, Eva Longoria, was preparing to marry Tony Parker the following month. So that kind of played into it as well. Uh, I actually saw her at that finals. Uh, if you think she's beautiful on television, you ought to see her in person. She was phenomenal looking, absolutely gorgeous woman. Well, I'll tell you what, so you gave them some material to write about for the day and kudos to you for having a plan that would uh, get LeBron uh, as a great icebreaker. That's fantastic. Yeah. A little bit later on during that session, when he was finished talking, he went out to the floor just to sit on the bench because the Cavs were, the Cavs were talking before their practice. And I, I, I walked over to him and he had a guy standing there and he said, Nah, man, he's done for the day. And LeBron said, no, no, it's okay. And he extended his hand and shook my hand. And I just said to him, I said, thanks, man. You made my job really easy today. And then I told him, I said to him, I said, you know, my favorite show on HBO was The Wire. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, that's Mello's show. He tells me I got to start watching that. And that was, that was like the only cool interaction I've ever had with LeBron James. Well, that's great. Here's another one about another big superstar. How many more rings could the Lakers have won if Kobe and Shaq stayed together? And what's your best memories of that duo? Oh, that's a tough question. I, I think they could have had a couple more. Uh, I mean, they, they legitimately got beat in 2003 by the Spurs. So it wouldn't have been this, this run of six or seven in a row. And in 2004, they added Carl uh, Malone and Gary Payton to a team that already included Shaq, Kobe, uh, Derek Fisher, Rick Fox. And they just imploded in that finals. Uh, that was ultimately the beginning of the end. Uh, because Kobe was tired of playing in Shaq's shadow. Uh, he felt like he was a true alpha, and ultimately he proved that he was. But they probably, if they were able to kind of put egos aside and take turns being the alpha, I don't know that in that their, their biggest competition in the middle of the 2000s would have come from the Spurs in the Western Conference semifinals or finals. Uh, I don't think there was an East team that that had enough to take them down. Certainly not if they were on all cylinders, the, the, the Pistons, as, as deep as that Pistons team was, I don't know that they were better than that Lakers team. And then the Heat team that dethroned uh, – that dethroned the Pistons in the East, I don't know that they had enough either. Uh, and Shaq, when he wanted to, was an unstoppable force it, at that time. There was, there was no answer for him. Uh, but you asked about an interaction like in covering that team. I, I, I guess I covered four finals that they were in. 
2000 through 2002, and then 2004 against the Pistons. Uh, in 2000, <clears throat> excuse me, you have to remember, like, that was the first year, the 99-2000 season was the first year that Phil Jackson was there. And everybody thought that Phil Jackson was going to come in and use his Zen stuff and and kind of calm everything down between Shaq and Kobe and get them all to play the triangle offense and kumbaya and all that stuff. And the truth of the matter is, is they were, they were about 10 minutes away from blowing a 3-1 lead in the Western Conference Finals and losing to the Portland Trailblazers, which is one of the unbelievable choke jobs in the history of the NBA. The Blazers had that game and that series and gave it away. But the Lakers win that rally to win that game and they go on to the NBA Finals and they're playing the Indiana Pacers. And they had, you know, prime Shaq, you know, and, and Indiana had no answer for him. They had Rick Smith's at center and Dale Davis and Antonio Davis trying to guard Shaq and like they had no answer for him. So Lakers win the first game of that series rather easily. And in the second game of that series, Kobe sprains his ankle and he sprains his ankle so badly that he, and I hope this analogy doesn't offend anybody out there, but he looked like a horse who had broken his leg and was trying to get up and couldn't stand up. He kept falling down. That's how badly his ankle was sprained. Kept trying to get up and get back into the play and kept falling down. So he left that game. The Lakers force-fed Shaq for the rest of that game and won that game, and they go up 2 nothing. So now the series shifts to Indiana for three games. This is when it was the 2-3-2 format. And Kobe sits out game three. They figure with the days off and sitting out game three, maybe they can get him back to a point where he could play again in the series sooner rather than later. So with Kobe sitting out and Indiana fired up with the fact that they're back home, they win game three. And so now we have game four, which is kind of an important game. If Indiana wins the game, the series is all even and Kobe's running around on Kobe's on a bum ankle. And now it looks like it's anybody's series. If the Lakers win the game, then it's three, one. And there's no way that the Lakers are going to lose three in a row to the Pacers. So Kobe comes back for game four and it's a really tight, tense game. It ends up going to overtime and Shaq, I believe fouled out late in the fourth quarter. So now here's Kobe on a bum ankle and he's the guy now, like they can't throw the ball to Shaq anymore. Shaq has fouled out and he's the guy and he just takes over in overtime. He was so clearly the best player on the floor and he just took the game over and kind of willed the Lakers to an overtime victory, making pull-up jump shots, drawing fouls and getting to the line, grabbing key rebounds. He just, he was, he was clearly an alpha. So the next day is a day off and Kobe's still receiving treatment for the ankle. He comes into the media room, speaks his piece, and, and then goes off to get treatment. And he walks down this back corridor with the Lakers uh, media relations guy, a guy named John Black. And he's headed to a room to get electric stimulation on his ankle. And I was walking down that back corridor as well. And because I was headed out to the court and I walked past him and I just kind of walked with him for a little bit. I was, it was just me, him, and this guy, John Black. And I said, and I said to Kobe, I said, you know what they're saying out there, right? And he said, who? And I said, the media. And he said, what are they saying? And I, I told him that what they're saying was last night was the night that you finally emerged from Shaq's shadow that you don't have to play in his shadow anymore. And he just kind of looked at me and gave me like that sly smile that he used to give people and said, 
I hope so. And like, if you think about where his career went after that, like, like it probably told him too that, you know what? Yeah, I'm good enough. I can carry a team. And probably that ultimately led to the breakup of that Lakers team because, you know, Shaq was winning championships and spending the offseason getting overweight and asking for contract extensions. And Kobe, I mean, his work ethic is second to none. And he would look at Shaq and kind of say, you know, why is this guy on a par with me? I'm the one who's putting in all the hard work. I'm the one dedicated to my craft. And he was kind of right, to be honest with you. But I think that that game was kind of the moment where everybody realized this guy's not a number two. He's a number one. We, he just hasn't had the chance to show it yet. And it was, I thought it was interesting that he said, I hope so. Because you could tell that somewhere in the recesses of his mind, that was a goal of his. Well, Chris, so you could be indirectly credited with either the breakup of the Lakers or the beginning of the birth of Mamba mentality. If you want to look at it that way, of course, he could come out and shoot 0 for 6 in the overtime when <laughs> we have an entirely different story. <laughs> but it, I do think that that was the moment in Kobe's career where it kind of shifted, where like, I'm not playing second banana to anybody. You know, well, that's great. Let me ask you this, Chris, uh, briefly, what's the best way to remember Celtics great number six, Bill Russell, and could he play in today's NBA? Could he play in today's NBA? Of course he could. Could he be successful in today's NBA on the defensive end? Certainly. But I, let me, let me, I, I don't want to go too on, on too long a rant here, but let me kind of be as brief as I can about this, Mike. The players always get better. They always get better. And that's why it's kind of unfair to compare errors. Uh, just to give you kind of an example, they don't just get better, better. They get bigger, stronger, and faster. There's more coaches. There's better scouting. There's easier travel. There's a greater understanding of rest and diet. And that makes players better as well. But just to give you a snapshot of this, okay? Wes Unseld is one of two players in NBA history to win Rookie of the Year and MVP in the same season. The other is Will Chamberlain, okay? Unseld did that, I believe, in the 67-68 season. He was a center. He was 6'7 and 245 pounds. LeBron James is 6'8, 260 pounds, and he's a point guard. <laughs> so it's kind of unfair to compare errors. Like if you were to find the physical match for Bill Russell right now in the NBA, it's probably this kid Herb Jones on the New Orleans Pelicans. You're kind of lean and gangly, you know, with great reach and and good quicks and great jumping ability and big hands. And, but that's the physical comparison for Russell right now. And Russell in his career only guarded centers. Herb Jones guards everyone two through four, you know? So the game has changed an awful lot, but I do think Russell's defensive discipline would allow him to be successful in today's game. Could he be like a rolling big, like in the pick and roll, like the way kind of Nick Claxton plays or DeAndre Jordan plays or a lot of centers play today? Probably. He had a pretty good mid-range game, but at some point in his career, they would ask him to extend that out to three points. And because he was a 56% free throw shooter, it's questionable whether he would have been able to do that. So I don't want to dismiss Russell's greatness, 
but I do want to illustrate how much the players and the game have changed. And they, it always changes for the better. Understood. And here's the good final question from Joseph speaking about modern players. And then we're going to get back and close with your trivia question. Joe, why don't you take us to the, uh, the finish line? Help us preview the 2022 and 2023 season. Name a few teams, East and West, you think are dangerous. And who was your, your NBA MVP? I'll answer the second question first, okay? I think this is finally the year that Joel Embiid is not is not the best man. He's actually the groom. I think this is the year he wins the MVP. Oh, my Sixers fans are going to love that, like Uncle Lou. We're Celtics fans here. I, I think the Celtics are too diverse to have an MVP candidate. Obviously, it would be Jason Tatum because he gets the most – kind of publicity out of that team. But I think they're too deep and too diverse for him to, for them to have an MVP. Uh, but to answer your first question, Joseph, I kind of looked at this earlier, earlier in the day, just to make sure. And the, to me, the teams that have the least amount of question marks are the closest to the championship, right? I mean, that's, that's a kind of sensible way to look at it, right? If you have to ask too many questions about a team, then they're probably not in position to contend. And so let's go back to last year's finalists, which was Boston in the East. And Boston's two biggest problems in that series, let's be honest, they were throwing the ball all over the court and their depth ran out on them. Like I know... Celtics fans by the end of that series were watching Derek White go out on the court and say, Oh my God, how long is he going to be on the floor? And as series progress in the playoffs, your bench gets shorter. And I thought they did a good job of answering both of those questions this offseason by acquiring Malcolm Brogdon and Danilo Gallinari. So to me, they're the favorite in the East. I think they're the favorite to go back. Uh, you could also argue that if Chris Middleton was healthy, maybe Boston wouldn't have been in the finals in the first place. But that's a big if. As my father used to say, if ifs were gifts, every day would be Christmas. But I think Milwaukee with Giannis, who is probably the best player in the game right now, is certainly a contender. Uh, having a healthy Middleton and a healthy Lopez will help. Uh, I'm wondering about what Miami is doing to replace PJ Tucker right now, it looks like their starting power forward is Markeith Morris. Uh, they still have a very, very good team and some of them are young, so you can expect them to get better, but Kyle Lowry is getting up there in age as well. In Philadelphia, it all comes down to is how, how motivated is James Harden? If you look on social media right now, he looks like he's pretty motivated. He looks like he's lost a bunch of weight. He looks like he's really, really committed to what's going on there. I mean, he took a $15 million pay cut. I don't care what he's making. $15 million is $15 million. And I think, I think the Brooklyn Nets are the most, perhaps the most intriguing team in the NBA this year. Like that could be a championship team or that could be a four-alarm dumpster fire. Like, they have a big three that, if you think about them in the most optimistic way possible, you can see a championship. You can see this six-foot-ten defensive demon and terrific passer running the fast break and distributing to either Irving or Durant with shooters all around them. Or... You could look at those big three guys and wonder if Kyrie Irving is going to take some unannounced time off and, or if Kevin Durant decides I would like a trade on, you know, like December 14th, or if Ben Simmons is even going to play because of his fragile emotional psyche. Uh, 
So those are the teams I think in the East. I think there's five teams legitimately who have a chance to win the championship. And I do think the East is stronger than the West. In the West, I think Golden State did a nice job of reinforcing their bench. They lost Otto Porter. They lost Gary Payton Jr. But they signed Jermichael Green and Dante DiVincenzo. And I like both of those guys as players. Uh, and they have James Wiseman healthy, hopefully. So their depth is is still there. Phoenix gets Dario Saric back. That could help. Or he could be trade bait for something else that they may need. They seem to be one player away, in my opinion. Uh, the Clippers and the Nuggets are remarkably interesting teams because both teams have injured star players coming back. Uh, the Clippers have Kawhi and Paul George, and they added John Wall, who I do not think is finished and might end up being the best backup point guard in the NBA. Because if you're turning John Wall's speed loose for 18 to 20 minutes a game, imagine how effective that could be against reserve players. And in Denver, they're getting Jamal Murray and Michael Porter back to a team that has the two-time defending MVP. And I think they have a kind of really good player in, in the weeds right now in this kid, Bones Highland. I think he's got a chance to be a really good player. And Contavious Caldwell-Pope is definitely going to help them on the defensive end. Their, their guard situation last year, especially without Murray, was questionable defensively. And Jokic is not the best rim protector in the whole world. Uh, Memphis is still in the picture because they're young. I looked this up today. Danny Green is their only player who's over 29 years old. And he's not even going to play because he has a torn ACL. Uh, I'm really interested to see what's going to go on with Minnesota and playing Rudy Gobert alongside Carl Anthony Towns. They don't have a hell of a lot of depth. And New Orleans getting Zion back could be pretty interesting as well. Because when he's healthy, he's a monster player. But is he going to stay healthy? And how do they incorporate him when Brandon Ingram's kind of been the guy there for the last two years, scoring 25 points a game? So I ultimately, I think the final four will be Boston, Philadelphia, Golden State, and the Clippers. Okay, that's an interesting final four. And Joseph thinks it is as well. He's glad you have our Celtics up in there. And we're going to try to go to Boston at times. Listen, Chris, we wanted to thank you so much for, for joining a father and son to learn more about the game, the past players, the current players. Thank you so much for, for sharing all your great stories. Thank you. Do you want the answer to the trivia question? Yeah, I've been thinking about it the whole time. I know that... Um, uh, Joseph said the magic and was wrong. I'm going to say the Utah Jazz. That is also incorrect. The answer to the question is the Charlotte Hornets. Ah, oh, not during the Kemba years, not back when they had Alonzo Mourning. No, not at all. Look at that. Well, thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you, and we invite you out to the ball field or the hard court to see Joseph in future games. I appreciate the invite, and thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Chris. Have a great fall, and enjoy the basketball season. Thank you. Take care, Joe. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, that was awesome, Joseph, being able to hear about all different eras of basketball players from the past and current. I hope you enjoyed it. And son, I want to wish you luck in middle school this year, 
your starting fall ball, you had your first practice today, and you continue to work on your basketball game weekly in the driveway. And listen, we're going to do something special. We want to give away a Paul Jenis Game Within the Game Tops card again. But we didn't do a pre-pitch us a question uh, email. So what we're going to do is, you know, we always wonder, with the thousands of people that listen to the podcast, who's the first person who presses play? Are they in Connecticut? Are they in the United States? Are they overseas? Are they from our NBA message boards, from Facebook, from Twitter, from our Yukon fans, the Boneyard? So if you're the first person or you think you are that listens to the podcast, we have a word of the day. Send me the word of the day in social media or email me or text me or DM me. And if you get it right and you were the first person to listen to this episode, we're going to send you a fantastic custom card. Joseph, what's the word going to be? for our fans for this episode. The word is crossover. Well, I hope you had a good time, son. I love you. Love you too.